Everything in Houston is spread out. So we drive. That's why we roll our cars like that. Slow, loud, and banging. Houston is a city of roads. Look at an aerial view and you'll see them. Over 6,000 miles of asphalt engulfing the entire city. It's an endless network of freeways and exit ramps and streets, tangled up like headphone wires. And in this city of roads, the car is king. To be specific, the slab is king. Slab is not a car to me, it's a way of life you know, and that word is very, very significant in Houston. Slaps are those brightly colored whips you see in Houston rap videos. They're classic cars mostly. Cadillacs, Buicks, Lincolns. They all come drowned in glossy paint that glistens like a Jolly Rancher. They've got these long cone rims and the fake fifth wheel mounted on the back like jewelry. It's got no purpose, just strictly vanity. It was about the anticipation of your car, what color it was going to be painted, what neighborhood you represented, what all additions you had to it, the fifth wheel, the grill. Belts and buckles. The swingers, the buttons, the blades. 83s and Vogues. The roof. Pop roof, pop trunk. Remote control radio. The leather, the paint. Candy paint. The look has to be just right, but the sound is just as important because a slab is not a slab unless it's these three things. Slow, loud, and banging. Slow, loud, and banging, man. I mean, it's a culture of its own. When you're driving a car, listening to your music, it's certain things you want to hear. When you're in your car, you want to hear that heavy bass. Because you ride and you want to be able to feel the music while you listen to it. It's just a intensification of the senses. We bang down the block. You know, we would put 50, 60, six by nines in a car just to give it that bass sound, so. You can actually hear the trunk like rattling. If your trunk wasn't rattling, then you wouldn't have it. <laughs> but besides all the flashy modifications, there's one vital accessory that every slab has to have. The right music. And in Houston, that can only mean one thing. DJ Screw in the tape deck. When you see a slab and you hear it banging screw, it's like the complete total package. In the screw music permeating through the windows or through the trunk, you hearing that down the road, it just spark something inside of you. It's like, you know, it's just it's like the difference between smoking a cigarette and smoking a blunt. You know, the blunt gonna get you high. The cigarette gonna get you canceled. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? In Houston today, screw music is synonymous with slab culture. But back in the early 90s, DJ Screw was a long way from getting into everyone's stereo. He had started to slow music down, but he hadn't figured out how to bend beats to his will and create his signature psychedelic sound. He'd have to draw inspiration from Houston's mixtape OG, find a way to blend in the rhymes of the city's hottest rappers, and then put in his 10,000 hours on the decks. Only then could he find his sound, a sound that's as slow and hot as the Houston air itself, 
a sound that eventually filled every car and crib across the city. My name is Brandon Jenkins, and on this episode of Mogul, DJ Screw takes Houston. When a teenage screw landed in Houston in the 90s, the musical landscape was mostly dominated by coastal hip-hop. The city was still searching for its own sonic identity, so most people just listened to lyrical boom-pap stuff coming out of New York or classic G-funk tracks from the West Coast. But there was a group of local artists beginning to make noise. Here's Houston OG, Little Kiki, to break it down. See, I'm, I'm young enough to remember when Scarface was local. I started small time, dope game, cocaine, pushing rocks on the block, I'm never you know what I'm saying? And this was the biggest thing. Street military and 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 the South Park Coalition. This wasn't even mainstream. These were local artists. I'm I'm old enough to remember UGK's first album, you know, Tell Me Something Good. Screw kept up with all the latest releases and newest artists on the local scene. But as much as he admired the up-and-coming MCs, he was still focused on the DJs. Ever since he saw the glove Gary Taylor cutting it up and breaking as a kid, that's what he wanted to be. The man behind the turntables. And he was starting to see more local DJs turn into stars in their own right. Some of them were moving so many mixtapes that it wasn't uncommon to hear cars blasting their music. And the young screw would have seen these tapes stacked on shelves in his local record stores. But at that time... There was one DJ in town that was a cut above the rest, the undisputed king of the mixtape scene. Name is Daryl Scott from Houston, born and raised Third Ward by way of South Park, as well as Hiram Clark. Uh, uh, What else am I supposed to say? Daryl Scott made his name in the 80s because of his coveted blast tapes. Back in the day, every tape D. Scott made had the word blast in it. Spring Break Blast. Isley Brothers Blast, Slow Jam Blast. You get the picture. He sold these tapes for 10 bucks a pop and made so much money that he was able to buy a Benz when he was in the 10th grade. Before long, he had his own store, Blast Records. And in the early 80s, D. Scott started to introduce something new to his DJ sets. He was playing a live show and started to slow a record down. We used to joke a little bit sometimes every once in a while with 45s. That used to be just as a joke. It wasn't nothing that was intended to uh, to uh, to record or move the crowd or anything like that. But that was uh, started off with fresh is the word. As well as uh, if you want to ride the white horse. Songs that were on 12-inch discs, but the speed was 45. And some got it, some didn't. Like I said, it was like, you know, it's like, okay, all right. But 
it wasn't, you know, one of the things that just I could do over and over again. They, you know, it's like I said, if you were familiar with the original songs that I was playing, then you wanted to hear it at the regular speed. To D. Scott and most people in the crowd, this shit was a gimmick. Some even thought that slowing it down was a joke. But a young DJ Screw was captivated. He saw a successful DJ who was making serious bread and experimenting with slowing music down. In short, Daryl Scott represented everything he aspired to be. Daryl Scott is the mixtape godfather here in the city. Daryl Scott was mixtapes before people knew what mixtapes were. Like, he was the godfather. That's Orion Lumpkin, a.k.a. Lump. L-U-M-P like a lump on a log, <laughs> so to speak. Lump worked with Screw and was one of his best friends. He told me how D. Scott was an inspiration for Screw. Yeah, Screw would give it up to D. Scott. Yeah, Screw saw what Daryl was doing and he came up with his style with the tap tapping, with the back and forth, with the scratching and the pulling the back and bringing the back. That's how it was. The style that Lump's talking about? It was still a work in progress in the early 90s when Screw first started slowing music down. He soon realized that just changing a record speed wasn't enough. Anyone with pitch control could do that. Screw started to get obsessed with slowness and began experimenting with recording his DJ sets and then transferring them onto cassette tapes to intensify the effect. Now, every superstar DJ has their own special touch on the turntables. Grandmaster Flash was known for his beat juggling. DJ Jazzy Jeff is known for his transforming. And DJ Premier is known for his trademark scratching. But the technique that Screw would become known for was called chopped and screwed. It's a style of DJing that would define his career and change his life. To understand Chopped and Screwed, you need to know that it's two separate things. First comes the chopping. First, first comes the, comes the chop. So the basic premise of it, you know, it's, it's doubling. It's what a lot of people do in DJing, playing one record a little bit behind the other one, going back and forth between them, back and, back and forth between them. This is Lance Scott Walker. He's writing a book on Screw. He explained how Screw would have two copies of the same record playing, and he chopped back and forth with his crossfader, repeating words and phrases, highlighting grooves that caught his ear, and bending the music to his will. But it wasn't just limited to that. You know, he's winding records back. He's he's dragging his hands on the records. Sometimes he's switching back and forth really quick. Um, sometimes he's you know he's dragging his hand on the record. Sometimes he's just dragging his hand on the side of the turntable. Maybe just one little finger that's pulling that record right down to where he wants it. So it's really organic. Yeah, he was a funky ass DJ. Like, damn, dude was dope. And that's the chop, chop. This has been Ami. He's a podcaster and DJ from Houston. And he's a certified screwhead. The screwing part of it is it was done afterwards. He would record a set and then he would put it into a machine and slow down the tempo of the whole set. And that's the screwing element. That's, that's the screwing element. Screw would take the recording of his set and run it back through a tape deck, twisting the pitch control dial to slow things down. Along the way, the music would become more warped and distorted. It'd pick up crackles and hums as the cassettes rattled in the tape deck. And that strange brew of slow, fuzzy beats was DJ Screw's sound, a unique frequency that only he could find. That right there is really the magic of DJ Screw.
Once he'd found his sound, Screw wanted to share it with the world. But before he did that, there was a cosign he needed to have. The blessing of the mixtape OG, Daryl Scott. Screw's friend DJ Chill had to connect, so he took Screw over to D. Scott's store. Chill brought him up to the shop one evening and said, hey man, this is, you know... I said, yeah, I've seen him before, and he was like, this is, and he said his name at that time, but I don't think he said, he didn't announce it, did he? But he was saying he wants you to listen to what he's doing. It's like, he put it, I put it in the cassette deck, and it was so slow. And when you heard it, you were like, oh, like, was it? Not too slow, but you were like, oh, is this going to work? Did you have anything no, like I, that? Like, what was your I thought? I literally thought the cassette deck, you know, once a tape gets caught up in that in the turning wheel, it will drag and start <laughs> slowing down. And that's when I started tapping on it like, oh, no, I'm messing up your tape. You know, I thought I was actually, I thought his tape was being chewed up inside of my deck at that time. And that was him and Chill at the same, no, 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 it's not, no, it's not that, it's not that, that's... That's where he got it, man. That's where he, that's where he's playing it right there at that level. Way too slow for my taste of what I was doing because, it, you know, like I said, I wouldn't listen to everything slowed down like that. D. Scott was no stranger to slow, but this was an unprecedented kind of slow. Still, he was inspired by this young guy's dedication and creativity. So even if he didn't entirely get this new sound, he was still down to carry Screw's tapes in his store. Did you have any idea that this style of DJing was going to take off, this slowed-down Daryl Scott style? No earthly idea. I don't, and don't call it Daryl Scott's sound, because when it blew up and blew up for the massive, uh, then it, that, that is screw. No, he wasn't the first to slow down a record. I think everybody has agreed that. That's OG Ron C of the Chop Stars. His DJing style was heavily influenced by screw. But what he did was, it's like Xanarans. Like, Xanarans wasn't the first person to make a gumbo. They made the gumbo the best at the time. (laughs) And they made it cool for everybody to really like instant gumbo. Right? So it's just like DJ Screw, he came and he added his additives and, you know, preservative to it and made it a culture and made it cool for everybody to ride around like and slow down music and people not saying something wrong with your tape deck or something was wrong with your tape deck. And he created his gumbo of slowed down music. In the mid-90s, Screw wasn't exactly Zatarain's, but he was still building his brand and fine-tuning his sound. Back then, most of the people who copped Screw tapes were people in Screw Circle. Friends, friends of friends, and all you had to do was make your list of songs, head over to Screw's crib, and hand it to him. Here's Houston rapper Mike D. A personalized screw tape would be the songs that I like. You know, whatever was out there, Tupac, Sebo, a lot of West Coast music was out back then. So you take the selection of those songs and you put it on your tape. Screw's friend DJ Chill remembers the early days when getting a tape made was an intimate, totally bespoke experience. Back then, if you ordered a tape from Screw, He'd spend days making it for you. It's, it's one thing I need people to understand, too, is that when, when at the beginning, when he made a tape, it was it was a personal situation. It was like it's like a, a ta- like a tailored suit 
you know what I'm saying, to fit you. And when people heard your tape, then they would want to, they hey, man, let me get a copy of your tape. And then I was like, people was like, man, go make, go make your own. You know what I'm saying? So that, that, um, that spread him out a whole lot as well. Word started to spread about these tapes and so did the circle of how many people knew about them. Demand was starting to increase, and so Screw needed some kind of ordering system to keep track of everything. Now, this wasn't something that Screw had any experience in. He hadn't studied supply chain management. He had no MBA. Like everything else he did, his ideas were based on intuition and feel. And the system he came up with? It all revolved around a single shoebox. Screw was a sneakerhead, a huge Nike guy. So one day he grabbed an empty shoebox and left it outside of the apartment door. From now on, if you wanted a tape, you had to pull up at Screw's dad's place, open the shoebox, and drop off your list of songs and your $10. I remember when I heard that shit when I was like in high school, and niggas like, oh yeah, you can just drop it to his house, you know? I was like, nigga, what? You know, if you know the south side of Houston, it ain't no joke. It ain't no place to play around, you know, and to have people rolling up to your crib, you know, <laughs> and you just have a shoebox by the front door where they can just put, a, you know, a list of songs with an envelope and some money in it, you know, and then he and then he make you a record, you know, a tape, you know, that's that like, I'm like, ain't no damn way I'm having people come up to my crib, you know, and I, you give me money and I give you a tape, you know, you might as well be slanging at that point. People leaving money in the shoebox outside wasn't the best system. There are thieves. It could rain. I mean, Screw was basically running a business on the honor system. Plus, it was getting tough to keep up with the list. So Screw tried a new, more high-tech method. Here's DJ Chill. We didn't have a phone at home. We had to go to the payphone to use the, use the phone back then. You had a beeper, and you go to the payphone. So when people wanted to do a, a tape with him, they'll, they'll beep him. Then we'll go to the payphone and he'll write the list down at the payphone. <laughs> that's what, it, like, I I can go back to that time and think about it and like, yo, that's so like, <laughs> like the dedication to like even to yes. put that together. Yes. Ask people to describe Screw and they'll tell you he was a low-key guy. That his personality was just like the music he made. Laid back, chilled out. But he had a drive and intensity about him as well. He wanted to screw up the world, and he wanted to get his music out there to the masses. Back in the day, Screw practically lived by his pager, making the trek to the payphone rain or shine, clutching one of his small spiral-bound notebooks. He'd pick up the phone and scribble an abbreviation of the customer's list, and then he'd rush back to his apartment so he could get to work. But he had a problem, a kink in the supply chain. The fact that he still lived with his old man, Remember, Screw's father was a truck driver, and after an honest day's work, the last thing he wanted was to come home to his son blasting beats. The late-night visits from dudes coming to pick up tapes didn't fly either. Shit was unsustainable. Here's Lance Scott Walker. You know, his father didn't really support what he was doing. You know, thought, it, you know, go get a real job. You know, he didn't, he didn't think there was any way he was ever going to be able to support himself making music and, and DJing and making tapes. You know, just... Didn't see what his what he could get out of it. Eventually, it was too much, and Screw used the money he was making off tapes to move out and get his own spot, a one bedroom apartment on the south side. It was, you know, late nineteen ninety three, early nineteen ninety four, when he finally moves out of his father's house, finally moves out of his father's apartment, 
and all of a sudden he could stay up all night or all day and he could have people over you know that was a point where screw's life really changed because it wasn't about the money it wasn't about how many tapes he was making or anything like that but it was just like oh wow you know we can really create something new you know and we can really make something out of nothing make something out of just these records these instrumentals on these records and a guy coming over to my house with a sack of weed at one o'clock in the morning and you know we'll stay up through through daylight the more importantly that was when he really got to spend free time expanded time with the people who were going to become the artists on those tapes after the break screws gumbo gets a new ingredient rappers These days, you know that something's popping off because it's all over social media. But before IG and TikTok and Twitter, you got your cool from the dudes who hung outside. The cats with money, cars, and style. The dope boys. And after Screw got his own spot, started churning out more tapes, that's how you knew they were popping. Because now the dope boys were buying Screw tapes. You started to notice that a lot of the biggest drug dealers from each hood would be over at Screw's house because they popping in the streets. You know what I'm saying? That's Little O, a rapper from Southwest Houston. He explained how now that Screw had his own spot, notorious drug dealers would go to his crib and make their own mixes. And Screw would hop on the mic to shout him out. So if you was a street nigga at the time, it was kind of a thing of envy. Because you'd be like, oh man, he's shouting out so-and-so. The nigga's over there from Botany. Okay, he's shouting out so-and-so. Niggas over from Northdale getting money. You know what I'm saying? That's how it spread through all the trap niggas so fast. When Screw started out making tapes, it was just him messing around on his bedroom floor. But now his crib was a spot. His friends and neighborhood ballers would come over night after night. They'd drink and smoke out Screw's crib as they watched him work his magic on the decks. It was one thing to be inside the room or to get shout-outs but a whole other thing to be all over the tape, rapping. The next stage of the Screw Tape evolution came when people started to pick up the mic and drop freestyles over Screw's beats. So you starting off with whatever song you starting off your CD with, and as it's coming on, you might be talking in the intro. This is Big Pokey, a rapper who would come around Screw's house to freestyle in the early days. Yeah, we in here, woo-woo, yada, yada. Might give your neighborhood a shout-out, giving some niggas in your hood a shout-out, whoever in the room with y'all. This is Pokey shouting out his boys on a track called Soccer To Me. You know what I'm saying? Like, when you come over there to do your tape, it, gonna, it might be you and a few of your partners and or whatnot, and, you know, it's, it's just a vibe. You know, you, everybody over there, they kick back. You know what I'm saying? You got smoke and drinking and, 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 and putting your tape together. And it's live. And now DJ Screw's tapes were something else entirely. They transcended the mixtape genre. They went from being mashups and instrumentals to the ultimate showcase for Houston's hottest MCs. And they weren't just mixtapes anymore. Now, they were screw tapes. 
and that term became shorthand for Screw's signature chopped and screwed style. And pretty soon, every rapper wanted to get their golden ticket, an invitation to go over to Screw's crib to drop a freestyle. I mean, I've seen people getting ready to get married and postpone their wedding to go do a screw tape. Oh, yeah. It's that important. It's like Christmas. You know, you ever been, you remember being a little kid waiting on Santa Claus the next morning? That's how it was when Screw called. Ooh, I'm going to do my tape. Screw tapes are no longer just for the people who made them. They were for the whole city. One of the early tapes to pop off was a mix Screw made with Little Kiki and Big Pokey, freestyling over a Goody Mob beat. Songs like this were the underground equivalent of a hit single. But unlike other hits, you couldn't catch this shit on the radio. You had to get your hands on a tape. And now more and more people were asking for their own copy. The tapes became so popular, you know, people trying to listen. You know, dubs was in effect back then. I don't know if you know what a dub is, but that's when you take a cassette and you make like 400. You would have dual cassette players. So you take that and you would make that for all your homeboys. You know what I mean? So, and then they would go make 10 tapes and then they would go make 10 tapes and then they would go make, so Screw was smart. He started dubbing his own tapes. This is like a playlist now. I want to know what kind of songs Lil Kiki like. You know what I mean? So I'm going to go listen to his tape. And then at the end, I get to hear him flow. You know, it was just for him, but now I get to hear it. By the mid-90s, Screw had so many tapes that he was now starting to organize them into chapters. They had titles like Southside Holden, In Your Face, and Money by the Ton. Business was booming. But Screw never considered working out of his studio or changing his setup. He continued to work out of his crib. It was the hub for his whole operation. And as his network grew, more and more people were over there. You had the rappers, the dope boys, and the hangers-on and they all started to form a clique around Screw, Houston's answer to the Wu-Tang Clan. They were called the SUC. Yes, SUC basically stands for Screwed Up Click, or if you are a real member, then you know that it, is, it means Soldiers United for Cash. This is Dominique L. Boss Turner, and as the name suggests, she's a boss singer, manager, publicist, she does it all. And she's worked with a lot of the SUC guys. Guys like Youngster. Freestyle King, hard. Big Mo. They're Nate Dog of the South, Cook Man, you know? Mike D. Hustler, 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 Mr. Get It In. Of course there were others. Hawk, Little Kiki, Al D, Little Flip, Zero, ESG. And then there was the biggest star of them all, Fat Pat. Legend. Mr. Mr. Diamonds and Gators up on my feet. Yeah. Oh, he embodied Houston. He was our biggie and our Tupac. He was huge. That's Wood. You met him last episode. Wood was also a member of the SUC. And he told me that of all the guys in the crew, Screw was closest to Fat Pat. Pat was sort of like Screw's muse. Whenever he could, he'd put him on his tapes. And over time, the pair formed a strong bond. This is Pat rapping on a tape called Wineberry Over Gold. 
said, nigga, I'm full. I'm out the window. I'm hanging so low. I'm rolling AK banana clip, yo. So I start the fucking spring. How tight were Screw and Pat? Because I heard that they were kind of inseparable at one point. They was inseparable, bro. That was that was Laurel and Hardy, man. That was Curly. <laughs> that was Curly and Mo, man. Them dudes are something else, man. When DJ Screw first came to Houston, he was isolated. Other than DJ Chill and his dad, he didn't really know anyone. And there were many days and nights where music was the only thing to break the silence. But now, he had a whole crew built around him. And his house was almost always full. He made a family for himself. A big family. We was we was we was some big old we go places be like, God damn y'all some big old niggas. Just imagine Hawk Six Five, Hawk Danny Six Five, Pat Danny Six Five, uh Poker Danny Six Five, Mo Five Five, Danny Five, Four Five, Hundred Pound, Big Tune Danny Six Three Six Four. We was some big old, big old motherfuckers, bro. <laughs> I'm talking about big. Big country bread, Texas size. There's this old videotape of some of the SUC guys hanging out of Screw's crib. You can find it on YouTube. Usually it's posted with the title like Freestyle at Screw's House. The video's got that grainy 90s camcorder texture. And in it, you see the guys dressed in oversized tees and hats, forming a loose circle and taking turns to rap. Everyone looks like they're having a good time. It's more of a kickback than a serious recording session. But pause the video and look around and you'll notice something. Almost everyone in the room, including Screw, is cradling a huge styrofoam cup, like the kind you get at an all-you-can-eat buffet. And most of them are drinking the same thing, a mixture of codeine cough syrup and soda, otherwise known as lean. It came along with heroin, basically. The old heroin addicts used it until they could get a fix as a substitute. So if they couldn't get heroin, they would drink syrup straight and that would get the jinx up off of them, the sickness up off of them. That's Mike D. Back in the day, he went by the nickname The Drink Man. Allegedly. He told me that the drug's history in Houston can be traced back to the 50s and 60s when bluesmen would cut Robitussin with beer. From there, it began to spread. Well, we took it and made it popular by mixing it in soda and liquor and wine coolers and stuff like that. That's that's what we did. Like, that's the that's what people came up like. We were the first ones to put it in a Sprite soda. Drink played a big part in the culture of chopped and screwed music. Just like you see in the video, most times the crew got together to make music, they'd pour up and sip. And the SUC's lyrics were laced with references to the drug. And these references, they're all pretty casual. Because this didn't feel like an edgy drug. I mean, back then, codeine wasn't a controlled substance, and it was pretty easy to get a hold of. A lot of people told me that lean and chopped and screwed music became synonymous because they went together so perfectly. The drug, just like the music, made it feel like time had been slowed down. Doom, doom, doom. 
It's like perfect. When you drink syrup and hear screw, it's like, wow. I don't want to hear my music no other way while I'm on this beverage. When I'm sipping, I'm listening to screw music. This is Paul Wall. He needs no introduction, but I'm gonna let him have one anyway. What's up? My name is Paul Wall. I'm from Houston, Texas. I'm a, a rapper, entrepreneur, uh, and representative of Houston, Texas, where I'm from. Man, I would say, like I say, it's not required, but uh, to me, it's like, uh, I like to say it's like when you eat a good steak. If you eat a good steak and it's, man, just cooked to perfection, not overcooked too much, not undercooked. If you have a glass of a wine with it, that's paired with it perfectly, it just bring out different flavors in the steak. Uh, it, and it's the same thing with lean, where when you got that lean, it bring out different flavors in the music. Lean's got a reputation for slowing you down, but it didn't seem to have any effect on DJ Screw's output. More tapes kept coming. Chapter 91, Take It How You Wanna. Chapter 221, Two Pints Deep. Chapter 257, all about Pat. Screw's friends from back in the day remember him saying he was going to screw up the world. He wasn't there yet, but he'd succeeded in creating a world of his own. A world of syrup and slow beats and raps about slabs. And more and more people wanted a piece of it. It became clear that Houston had a new mixtape king, DJ Screw. And just like true royalty, people started to come from far and wide to pay homage. At 8 o'clock on Wednesday, he sell tapes. The only day he sell tapes. He make tapes the other days, but Wednesday, 8 o'clock, he sell tapes. That's what again. By the mid-90s, Screw had upgraded to a new crib. Now he had a whole ass house. Step out onto his porch any given Wednesday, and you see a procession of candy-painted slabs as far as the eye could see. Cars line up on this side, cars line up on that side. Their glossy paint glistening under the streetlights. Their booming bass filling the night air. Everyone was there to cop the tape. He lived on the cross street. So you got traffic this way, traffic that way, all four ways. And every way you look, it was cars. It's Benz's, Jaguars, Cadillacs. I say, what the hell is going on? That was Shorty Mac. He visited from Smithville, and suddenly, he had to weave through crowds just to link with his childhood best friend. Because they're parked in front of everybody's goddamn house at this point, like a line around the block. And that's Bun B. And a lot of them have music in their car. A lot of them are smoking Swisher Sweets in their car. At this point, they might be sipping syrup in their car. They might, instead of just sitting in the car at this point, might be sitting outside of the car, talking and shit, pissing in people's yards. (laughs) Once they were lined up, everyone had to wait until Screw opened his door. When he was ready, he'd stand behind a rusty burglar bar gate, and one by one, people would step up and hand over their cash. And at 8 o'clock, everybody get up, walk in the line like they're going to the welfare line. <laughs> they walk in the line like they're going to get corona shot, like they're going to get COVID shot, line up, <laughs> and they go get their shot. And at that point, I said, man, this dude here, he is on his way, man. Like, I was like, I have never seen nothing like this before in my life. Once they'd cop their cassettes, DJ Screw's customers would drop them into their tape decks and ride out their car trunks rattling from the strain of Screw's heavy bass.
On a night like this, Screw could make thousands of dollars. He'd stack bundles of cash and then stash them inside his crib. Over time, he started to sell more than just one night a week, and now even more money was coming in. DJ Screw wasn't exactly balling, but he was making a good living. He even managed to buy himself a slab of his own, a tricked-out blue Impala. Before he left home, Screw's old man, Robert Earl Sr., wasn't convinced this music thing was going to work out. He thought his son should be a truck driver like him. But even he was starting to come around. We was there shooting pool, and his dad apologized to him for it. Wow. But what did, where, where were you at, and what did he say? We was, we was in Houston on Greenstone, and we was shooting pool. And then he, he actually told him that uh, I, I really didn't think this music was going to amount to anything. And he told him, he, but he apologized to him and told him he was proud of it. And I, could, I remember when uh, he left Screw House, Screw said, man, that's crazy. He apologized to me. That moment meant a lot to Screw. His old man's cosign was a big deal. But this was still just the beginning, because DJ Screw was about to go from the underground hip-hop scene to the mainstream, and from making local celebrities to legitimate superstars. Next time on Mogul, a young star is born. I went in, I ran in the house and, like they say, uh, got a fly right quick, you know, like if I had a show. Not knowing I was uh, getting dressed for, uh, getting dressed for history, you know, a nigga finna make history. <laughs> Mogul is a production of Spotify and Gimlet Media. This episode was produced by Gabby Bulgarelli. Mogul is made by these amazing people. Our producers, Gabby Bulgarelli and Aaliyah Yates. Our supervising producer, Matthew Nelson. And our editors, Brendan Klinkenberg, Lynn Levy, and Chris Morrow. Sound design and mixing by Haley Shaw. Music supervision by Matthew Boll and Liz Fulton. This episode was scored by Rob Quest, Nana Quibena, and KPR. Theme music and additional scoring by So Wiley. Fact-checking by Stephanie Abramson. Special thanks this episode to Caitlin Kinney and Rachel Strom. Follow us on Twitter for all the latest news and a behind-the-scenes look at the making of the show. Our handle is at Mogul. My name is Brandon Jenkins, and I'll see you next episode.